This is Marilyn from Myrtle Beach. I've been a Paul fan since the mid-70s. My friends and I caught the first show in Atlanta, and having learned I had breast cancer just days before, it was very special to me. Live to win is one of my mantras. I've had the pleasure of meeting Paul twice, and I'm looking forward to One Life Kiss October 21st. Thanks, Paul, for all the years of entertainment. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Gary Schaller. And this is James Hager. We have a huge show for you tonight because we're celebrating the upcoming release of Paul's new DVD, One Live Kiss, with an exclusive interview that you will not hear anywhere else. That's right. Our very own Ken Mills was fortunate enough to chat with Louis Antonelli, the filmmaker who directed this exciting new DVD. October 21st is a day to mark on your calendars. Fans around the world will get a chance to experience the passion of a live Paul Stanley concert from their own TV sets. Big thanks to Kiss Online, PaulStanley.com, New Door Universal, and Louis Antonelli for this exclusive interview. And to the star child, Paul Stanley. Have you listened to the podcast before? You might want to check this one out because... Hi, I'm Louis Antonelli, director of Paul Stanley One Live Kiss, and you're listening to The Podcast. You were standing, and I was thinking of all the time that I spent hanging around. Louis, welcome to The Podcast. Glad to be here. What is Paul Stanley's One Live Kiss? Paul Stanley's One Life Kiss is uh, it's a movie that's a journey. It really uh, takes you from uh, it's Paul sitting alone on a stage with an old Gibson, one of his old Gibson Marauder guitars, just you know, strumming to himself, and he's uh, reflecting back on his life and talking about uh, the moments that brought him to where he is today. And uh, one of those things is the philosophy of live to win. It's about uh, a whole attitude and a way of being. Um, that's you know really it speaks a lot to a lot of people about how you can get yourself where you want to be and what you want to do in accomplishing your life. And uh, that's one of the themes of the film. We were with Paul as a young boy on uh, Queens Boulevard off 73rd Court, and uh, we're you know in front of his house. We're seeing the house from the from the perspective of a seven-year-old boy looking up at a house and then going, you know, driving down Queens Boulevard and how he would have looked at uh, Avenue Subway goes into Manhattan, the uh, Shea Stadium line. And uh, then we start, we're on this subway platform and we're seeing the trains coming and we're going into Manhattan. We're hearing about the origins of KISS. We're hearing about Paul being and seeing uh, Paul, you know, working as a cab driver in the early 70s in uh, New York City and dropping people off at Madison Square Garden to see Elvis Presley and how he said to himself, one of these days I'm going to be, I'm going to be here at Madison Square Garden and people are going to come, be coming up in a cab to see me. You know, it's all about dreams and aspirations and realizing them and uh, being a person who's, you know, in your own neighborhood, kind of an outsider and, uh, and a person who's uh, looked upon as different and uh, how that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be your own person and follow your own dreams and path. And uh, we see this as a, like an evolution in the beginning of the film. It's called the prologue. And that runs for about five minutes. And it's very, very impressionistic. It really comes across in all these visuals and images of, uh, from Paul's point of view. 
and uh, then you know we see this beautiful rose opening up, and it goes from color to black, from black and white to color, and so we bang, we're right into the first song from the concert, uh, Live to Win. And we're, we never leave Paul from that moment of the first chord strikes in the concert all the way to the coda of goodbye, um, which in his words in the film is, um, you know, goodbye is only for now, because um, I'm coming back, I swear, somehow. And it's that where we never leave Paul, we never leave the force of his music, the force of his presence. audience is a character in this film um, as you know kiss fans and uh, audiences involved with any aspect of kiss has always been the audience is part of the show and like you know Paul will be singing one phrase of a line we cut to someone in the audience finishing that line uh, mouthing the word singing along with him uh, we see the interplay of the musicians uh, from Paul's great Live to Win tour band, how the interplay between the musicians and how, you know, really they all fed off of each other. That energy, that feeling, when Paul strikes a chord, brings the neck of the guitar up into the frame. Everything was done in match cutting and rhythm with a, with a feeling for the music, a feeling for the people, for the whole environment. And that's what we really wanted to come across with the movie. We wanted it to be very alive it's an experience of living the moment with them and in this case uh the one and only paul family do you remember when you said i was the only one we'll watch the years go passing by i never dreamed that with the love i thought it just begun i'd ever hear you say goodbye I'll tell you, Lewis. After hearing that bit about where where you go from the black and white footage to the to the song just explodes out there, I want to see that right now. <laughs> I want to stop the interview and watch the DVD. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank um, you very much. I, I'm looking forward to everyone seeing it, and so is Paul. It's really a very very special film to us. It's really a a labor of love, honestly. How did you get involved with Kiss and uh, with Paul's tour and filming this? Well, getting involved with KISS, that goes all the way back now. That goes back to March of 1974 for me. I was a kid uh, growing up on uh, Addison Street in Chicago, a couple of miles from Wrigley Field. And uh, it was a local record store I used to go to all the time. It was March 74. And I went into there one day, and uh, I was already heavily into music uh, because I had an elder cousin who would take me to concerts. He took me to my first show in 73 to see Alice Cooper. And in the 60s, he would you know, bring home Jimi Hendrix's art. He lived two doors away from me. And he would bring home Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced? And I would hear that for the first time. He would call me over and say, hey, I got this new Beatle record. Come and listen to it. And it'd be the White Album. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I would hear, you know, Back in the USSR and Happiness is a Warm Gun and all those great songs um, from the White Album. That was, you know, day of issue. I mean, he was, you know, exposing me to this stuff when he was about, he's, uh, my cousin Johnny um, was about exactly Paul's age, about 12 years older than me. And he really let me experience so much stuff very early on. So uh, my ex exposure to Kiss was not through him, though. It was uh, I was walked into this record store, like I was saying, and there was that first classic, amazing promo poster that we all know, the red poster. Yes. You know, Kiss, new on Casablanca records and tapes. I walked into that store. Let me tell you, I, I felt like something just struck me. I was like, my God, what is that? 
And I was like, I've got to see that. I've got to go. I went right up to it. And I, the first person I gravitated to on that poster was Paul. Just his gaze, his stare from out, you know, from that makeup. I was like, you know, not even actually thinking that it was makeup at that time. I was just like, my God, what is this? And there was the record. And I was like, God, I'm buying that. So, you know, I took uh, my allowance out of my pocket, and you bet I bought it. And I brought it home, put it on the old turntable, and it never st- I've never stopped playing it. That, that and every subsequent record after that, uh, released by Kiss, I just, uh, it's music that just spoke to me, and, and uh, uh, imagery and emotion and feeling of, of this band that just spoke to me. And I was hooked. I was hooked from March 74 on, and then I was fortunate to meet the band for the first time and meet Paul for the first time in November 74 in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago. They did a record, in-store record appearance. There weren't a lot of people there, and fortunately for me, because Kiss at that time was actually more infamous than famous, uh-huh. um, it was a band that you either, in my neighborhood, it was like either people absolutely hated Kiss or people, a couple of people just loved Kiss. Right. And uh, I was one of them. And I was just like, you know, I went to this record store to meet him, and, uh, you know, there was Paul. And I had along with me, uh, you know, a collection of, because uh, I was already making films then. I started in the 60s making films as a small kid. Um, I had the dream to make films from five years old on. And I had pictures I had done at concerts. I had uh, experimental photography, all kinds of things. And I was gravitated to Paul because he looked to me like a person who you know, give a damn about that kind of thing. And fortunately for me, he really was. I mean, his nature was uh, a very visual, very expression, a person full of interest and ideas. And we sat looking at it, and he uh, really encouraged me. He talked about different pictures I had done, especially the experimental pictures over concert photography. He really liked them a lot. Uh, pictures of, like, light bulbs and pictures of uh, the filament of a light, things like that. He really found very interesting, especially, I guess, coming from a kid. And uh, I told him about all the dreams I had and things I wanted to do and that I wanted to work with him someday and uh, that I really uh, was, what he was doing was really speaking to me. Him and Kiss were really speaking to me. So he said, well, you know, I'm going out there and I'm the best, I'm being the best I can be. He goes, promise me you're going to go out there and you are going to do the same thing. And he goes, you know, you're going to go out there and you're going to give it your all. And, you know, maybe someday we will do something together. And uh, I, I promised him right then and there. And it's like, you know, it's something that uh, always lived with me. And I was, you know, working with so many people, you know, 27 years into my career. I was just like, well, I'm, I'm ready to work with uh, the best there is. And that's Paul. And uh, it came together that we made the film. You know, but I've, I'm a lifelong Kiss fan since I'm a kid, since 74. I wish I could have been there in 73. To see, because I'm sure back in this in '73 I could have gotten into a New York club, but I'm not a New Yorker. I'm a Chicagoan, right. so that's Shout the only out. part of Kiss. Yeah, that's the only part of history I missed is the club days in New York. I sure wish you know when I see the footage that Bill O'Coin saved of the of the Coventry that's been released on uh, Volume Three, I can't get over seeing that footage because I'm like, you know, I worked in old video formats like that reel-to-reel video format mm-hmm. like that with you know with old cameras like that, and just watching Kiss in that club, you know, from that single camera position. It has all the power in the world to me. I mean, I just love it. I, I think, uh, you know, I think Kiss is as vital then in that little club in Queens, New York, as they are today on the stages throughout the world. I think they're just, uh, they really speak to an audience. They surely, certainly speak to me, especially Paul. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that poster that grabbed your attention when you walked into that record store, you still have to this day. Oh, I sure do. It's still hanging in my home. Part of a part of a small Kiss collection I have of concert tickets and things that are mostly from Detroit and Chicago and Indiana. Because I used to, uh, my cousin, same guy I was telling you about, he used to take me around and uh, take me on you know, '75. I saw Kiss many times. 
uh, throughout the Hotter Than Hell and Dressed to Kill and Alive tour. And you know, my cousin used to take me everywhere. And uh, I took a lot of you know lying and, and things with my parents because they didn't want me going to all these different places. But fortunately, both of us were just great BS artists, and we were able to uh, <laughs> to really. Uh, he taught me how to really get it out there and just be able to go where I wanted by you know just uh, doing my thing. And but of course, I had to keep my grades up and do all that kind of stuff. Right. So I wasn't you know on the radar, so to speak. But as Drink. long as I did all that, I, I was my BS work beautifully thank god thanks to my cousin john bless his soul he's gone now for uh, since 91 but uh he is a big influence on my life uh made a lot of things possible for me including you know meeting kiss and seeing kiss for the first time kiss is an incredibly visual band and, and paul whether in makeup or without just uh an incredible presence on stage uh, and they've definitely made their mark in uh, history why do you think that kiss's popularity is so enduring I think that really comes down to a very cinematic concept, which is pure illusion, uh, the magic of, of an illusionary image. Kiss is alive, of course, and real people, but everything they've created is such an illusion. I mean, it's such their, their stage presence, their the makeup, the, the explosions and everything else. It sticks, it, it resonates in the mind in such a way that it becomes so much larger than life and so much visceral and it has such impact that it's no surprise to me at all that I always knew from the first time I ever saw Kiss before I ever saw them live. I knew, I said, this is going to be a band that's going to be the, one of the biggest things ever because there's nothing like this. There's, I've never seen anything. And I was a kid who, you know, I, I had seen so many movies up to that point, so many rock concerts, so many things, you know, and uh, I always loved the great story uh, Paul always told of, you know, back in the day of saying, uh, well, I think, you know, Kiss is a lot more fun than watching, you know, four, fl- four slobs on stage who need a shave. Right. I couldn't agree more because I loved the, the glamour, the excitement. Even when there wasn't, there was such a core of it to begin with. Of uh, You know, you went to see Kiss, it was exciting. It was exciting when half the audience couldn't stand them or were booing or, you know, saying get out of here or anything else. The other half was like, oh my God, is this, this is an event. Every show is an event. So it's like it grew from there. It grew into a legend that's continually perpetuating to this day, and I think way in hundreds of years from now, there's the people are going to know exactly who Kiss is and, and what they did, and they're be listening to their music because it's the same. It's a romantic ideal. It's a it's imagery, and it's the quality too of the music. It's the quality of what they've created. Uh, it has definite, um, you know, it, it's not just all, I remember in Rolling Stone magazine, it used to be, oh, well, it's all flash and no substance. Hardly. You can't last in this business or in any business. You cannot last for 35 plus years unless what you've done is of a very high quality and a very meaningful place in people's lives. And uh, I don't think they have anything to prove in terms of that, but they keep proving it to us over and over again every time they step on a stage. And I think that's really uh, how intense they take it to this day of stepping on that stage like every time is the first show. I've witnessed it firsthand, you know, being with them backstage and everything else. They even business they get on that stage. You were even on tour with them this last summer over in Europe. Yes, I was uh, fortunate. I did get to go to uh, many European shows, and I was with them in the uh, American leg of the uh, Live 35 tour this summer, the special shows that there were. And uh, I tell you, it's just it's an experience because it's like I think the the – Bringing back the Alive set list was such, was a brilliant stroke. Just it, it, it needed to come back out again, and with the you know the the lineup of the band the way it presently is, it's infused with such a new vigor. Such a, I mean, it's it, it's so right in your face. It's, it's, exactly. It's, oh yeah, I mean it's it's amazing. It's really uh, it has such power and force. Um, honestly, I enjoy it today more than I did 
in 75 um, in the, you know, when they were performing that set list back then, because I think it just has a different feeling for me today of, 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 of assured polish without a sense of, uh, this is routine. No, there's no, there's no routine to it at all. It feels very, I mean, every member of the band just really brings something very special to that stage. And it comes across in the tour. It's really just, I mean, uh, when this tour really hits the full stage, going on a full leg of a tour, it's going to be quite something to see. It's still alive after all these years. Um, and uh, Alive alive and dangerous. My God, that music <laughs> is so... I was listening to, you know, some of the alive, instant Alive 35 recordings. And, yes. Uh, I was listening to uh, the Paris show. It's like, my God, that music is, is dangerous on that track. It's so good. It's so, you know, it's brutal music. It's right in your face. It's, it's got that energy, that vibe. All right, Paris! You wanted the best! You got the best! The hottest band in the world! gigantic leaps again that are just like, you know, defy gravity, and, you know, Gene's bass playing is just really, you know, I was watching him in Vegas, and I was just like at the Palms, and I was like, during 100,000 years, I saw, I was just listening to, because the acoustics in the hall were outstanding, and listening to the bass, really getting a feel of the bass and drums and the vibe and the rhythm that were going on, I was like, boy, this is on top of it, I was like, my God, this is really this is this is kicking it. This is serious. And some of the so, photos uh, that we saw on Kiss Online that both Ross uh, Halflin, you, and Al Suri all took, there's shots of Paul just like he's levitating 20 feet in the air. It looks like, and it's like, how oh, is this he, even possible? Oh, and he, oh, it's possible because the man <laughs> makes it possible. He doesn't kid around. Uh, he gets out there, and it's like he, he's a possessed person on that stage. I mean, totally. He is with. He's a, he's symbiotically connected with that audience, as all members of Kiss are. But Paul takes it to a place where I don't think the gravity exists for Paul on that stage. I don't think anything exists for Paul on that stage except what he's going to put out to that audience and how he's going to entertain you and, and show you something you've never seen before. And uh, he did it on the Live to Win tour as well. I mean, he was doing the tremendous leaps and the and the um, you know coming down on the on the cords with a you know a spiral swirl off uh -huh. of his arm. Uh, you know the classic Pete Townsend. Thing and it's like you know I mean, he wasn't kidding he wasn't copying anybody either he was he was in the moment he was just giving it his all and it's like that's what I love about watching Kiss and watching Paul they just give their all when they get out there I mean they're just they take no prisoners they take no you know it's a, it's an attitude Kiss is an attitude and I think it's I was just talking to Paul about this in fact over dinner we were just talking about uh, attitude and how uh, you know attitude gets you through a lot of stuff and it's like that attitude is right on that stage it's always been since the beginning. And I think for every member that's ever been in KISS, that attitude has been a pervasive thing. And it's also become that way for fans through the years, like myself, who uh, took that attitude and brought it into their creative and professional lives and uh, business lives. I really think that KISS has had that kind of impact. And uh, you know, I think we all have a lot to thank uh, every member of who's ever been in KISS for that, to really give us that back as you know, something that fans can use for themselves. I know I certainly have. 
when you first heard the album Live to Win, what did you think of it? And uh, could you also tell us uh, what some of the highlights of the tour were for you? I really loved the album the first time I, hear, I heard it. And I know, you know, that's probably like, you know, people are saying, well, yeah, that's a routine thing for you to say. But I mean it because, you know, getting to that theme, to what Paul is doing on that solo work of Live to Win, that theme is, it, that's the guy I met in 1974, as when I was a kid. You know, when I looked at him, you know, I looked at him like he was a big brother. I was like, hey, this guy is really doing it. This guy is really, you know, and for me, I was looking at it as, you know, I'm a kid on Addison Street. I, I need, you know, role models to look up to because, you know, I was this, you know, weirdo who said, you know, it was five. I wanted to make movies. Believe me, on Addison Street, where I came from, that basically made me like somebody who said I just came from Mars. You know, it was like it was not, you know, like there were directors or musicians down the street or anything like that. It was more of a totally blue-collar working-class area of great people, just a, a wonderful people that I really loved. But, you know, I was completely, you know, not out of step with that. So the feeling of live to win, when I heard that name and that concept, before I heard the music, I was like, of course, this is Paul. This right. Is, this is going to be, this is going to be. You knew just from form. the title, just from the title alone, you knew. I knew, yeah. And I was like, then I, before I heard the music, I said to myself, well, I think this is the time. This may be, I may be ready to approach him to actually, you know, have my chops together to pay my dues and say, oh, I'm ready to work with the best here. And uh, that's the way I approached it. It was almost like a boxer, uh, you know, preparing, going from fight to fight to fight, to saying, all right, I want to get up with the heavyweight champ. I want to get up there. I want to work with, I want to go up against the best. I want to make, I want to work with that person to create real magic. And uh, then when I heard the album, I was like, oh my God, this is he's not kidding. Because the songs all speak um, on that album. The songs all speak to aspects of his character, as all Paul's songwriting does. It tells stories about him, about his inner life, <clears throat> his emotional self, his romantic self, his practical self, uh, his defiant self. It's all there. And I thought, well, this is the perfect time now to maybe cinematically capture somebody I owed such a great debt to, who really inspired me in such a great way, to present you know, a shared vision of mine and Paul's of, of how, how I see them. And uh, you know, I know how the rest of the world sees him, just as uh, a very inspiring person and a, and a, a larger-than-life figure on stage. And uh, the album spoke to all that. And I just think that uh, it, was a, it was a fantastic release, very uh, pivotal music in his career, and uh, speaks a lot about where he's at now. And, uh, of course, where he always came from, which is the whole attitude of Live to Win. When the Kiss 4K comic book came out, a lot of uh, fans were surprised to find out that Paul knows a lot about comic books. We all assumed that Gene was the comic book guy in the band. Uh, what is something else about Paul Stanley that would surprise his fans that we don't know about? I don't know how surprising it would be but to people, but I really think, you know, if they, to know Paul as a person, you really, it's a, it's a really great thing because I'll tell you, you know, if Paul wasn't, you know, Paul Stanley of Kiss, you know, a, a legend in music or anything else, if he was the person who lived next door to you, you'd want to be his best friend because he's just such a, the depth of his character, of his soul, what kind of person he is. He's a great father, a very devoted husband, a, a great friend to have. He's a person who's really, if he's your friend and he believes in you, he's really, and he, he really he, he gives you his all. He doesn't kid around. And uh, it's like, you know, those are the kind of people you like to have in life who are really, uh, you know, not just, you know, full of crap and, you know, just your friend one minute and blow you off the next. That's not the kind of person Paul is. Paul is a really um, much more humble person than I think anyone would really think and uh, a very devoted 
person to every aspect of his life, and I think that really comes true uh, in things he does. I mean, so I don't know how much of a surprise all that would be, uh, just to say that he really is a, a very unique person and somebody I'm really delighted to know on, on such a level that we made a movie together, which is uh, a really special thing to do with someone. mentioning Paul's backup band, the famous house band. Most people know them as the house band from the CBS TV show uh, Rockstar. There was Rockstar in Excess and the, the, the sequel to that as well. Uh, an amazing bunch of guys, some amazingly talented people. And you were telling me that Paul wanted to make sure that they were featured as well, that there was interaction between them. Could you please elaborate on that and give us your impression on the guys in the band? When I approached the movie, I was taking a stance of where we designed and directed it. We did it to a point of where I was focusing too much on Paul, uh, too much on Paul and the reaction of the audience and everything else. And I was kind of like leaving the band a little bit in the background. So they were prominently featured, but not in a direct interplay the way it came out. And that was right. it's purely Paul. He came up, he, you know, we were watching the cut, and he said, you know, he goes, Lou, I think there's too much of me, which, I, of course, I've <laughs> never heard uh, an actor or a performer <clears throat> Uh, ever say to me, there's too much of them. So that'll right there will tell you can tell you you know volumes about Paul Stanley and his character. Um, he said, let's see more of the other guys. He goes, I know you have a lot of you know stuff we worked out that's really going to work out. He goes, let's get back into the cut. And what do you think if we expand it out a little bit and you know show the reaction more between you know again we get into reaction reaction. We were totally like you know symbiotically connected on that where we really knew where each other were coming from. So I was like. My God, I felt like a blind man. I was like, absolutely. You know, we'll get right in there. We'll go, go, go back and expand out on the vision of this. And it made the picture come alive, really. I mean, you know, to not to use a cliched word again, like alive with when it concerns anything involving Kiss, but it really brought another dimension to the film. Um, and that's where, you know, when you talk about collaborating with someone, when you can collaborate on that level and have such trust and, you know, like talking back and forth with each other and, you know, saying, you know what? I don't you know. I don't know if I like that. How about this? How about this? How about that? Things start to really happen because you know there's there's a a common misconception in the world of cinema of where you know everybody thinks well it's a totally a director's medium. That's that's for the most part a lot of bunk. That's you know the whole auteurist thing which has some merit. But to me, it's basically stuff like that is good for books and so forth. But in the real world, it's not practical or rea or reality. It's, you know, when you make a movie, you, you are working with a, a whole crew. You're working with a performer or many performers. It's a whole community. I mean, I don't think anybody ever put it any better than uh, the great poet and filmmaker Jean Cocteau when he was making um, the film Beauty and the Beast, uh, post-war France. And um, he uh, wrote in his memoirs that he felt the making of a movie was akin to a medieval village where everyone came together with their individual crafts and their individual selves and brought them all to the village to perpetuate that village and keep it alive and keep it fortified and strong. I believe that's the same in the cinema. You, you have 
you know, everyone working together and, you know, everyone comes together if it's working right. Everybody comes together as like as a whole, like one force, one unit. And you're all working towards an end goal, which is to make the best possible film, something that the audience has never seen before. And that's what working with Paul was especially great in, because he has that magnetic quality about him that brings everyone together, makes everyone feel important and vital in it. And we worked along the same lines on that, of uh, working with my crew, where we all we all just felt like a family. We were all so happy to be doing it. On set when we were shooting, it was great because, you know, we're setting up for the day and everything on the main unit in Chicago. And everyone had a kiss story. Everyone had like, you know, oh, I saw a kiss here. I was, I was, uh, you know, I waited for an autograph here. I remember when this record came out, I, I was waiting at the record store for this record and that record. It was, it was so cool to see that because when you have a crew that's really into what's happening, oh, you, and you have, you know, the, the audiences, the performers, the, 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 the craftspeople are, the, everything comes together. It's pure magic. Oh yeah, dedicated kids fans. Aside from being great, you know, professional technicians and artists in their own right. Can you tell us about the the guys in the band and uh, what they might have brought to the table? Oh well, they brought a whole lot to the table. I couldn't have enjoyed working any more with with a group of guys. They were so outstanding, of just characters and people. I mean, um, Sasha, the bass player, he was just full of jokes and good humor and and uh, just you know a killer technique on the bass. I mean, he just he had the music down and the, the heart and soul of the music down. It was great. Jimmy McGorman on uh, rhythm guitar along with Paul. You, know, you have a feeling of where everyone was harmonizing with each other. The, the vocals all coming together with the rhythms and the textures of the music. Everything was just clicking and happening. And it was like, you know, it was because of the band. I mean, the band worked hand in hand with Paul. It wasn't like, well, here's, you know, here's the, the, the legend we're working with. And, you know, we're all subservient to that. It, it felt like the whole band, everyone was equals in it. They were playing off all, one another. Inter oh, there was absolutely. Genuine interplay between the, the band and, and Paul. Oh, absolutely, with Paul being the leader of the catalyst of all this and, you know, directing his band, but, you know, and the feeling and, and tone of it all. But, oh, yeah, they were all, like, you know, feeding off of each other completely. I mean, Nate Morton on drums. Amazing you know, drummer. You listen, amazing drummer. When you listen to A Million to One and you feel the vibe, you know, you can close your eyes and you can kind of picture some of Eric Carr in there, but then right comes forth, there's, there's Nate Morton, and he's... uh He's one serious badass on those drums. I mean, uh, he he really gives you the uh, he gives you the, the the rhythm and he kicks it through you. He just keeps kicking in the rear end, you know. The and that, that helped the visuals. That were, it was uh, one of the keys we keyed off of to uh, to work with, along with uh, Paul. Also, uh, Raphael on uh, lead guitar. It was something to see the interplay with him and Paul because you know it would be like he would be playing this massive riff. And he would be turning to Paul to, like, you know, look at the master's approval. And Paul would be just, like, you know, nodding his head like, uh, I'm digging it. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's it's great to see that, you know, people just, you know, the, the human energy of, of communication and the human energy of performance, you know, and how it all came together for these guys. You know, I mean, I remember seeing um, Paul Murkovich on keyboards. His, I mean, he was doing such a fantastic job fitting, you know, keyboards in sometimes difficult areas in some KISS music. Um it really worked, like Got to Choose. You know, I remember one fan telling me, um, well, I, I don't know about keyboards and Got to Choose, but, I, man, they all made it work, and it works like gangbusters. So it's like, you know, you, you can't just take it as, well, you know, this music is meant for a quartet. It's it's meant for how you're feeling it, how it's coming across. You know, so um, I think the band, I mean, like I say, a, gr a better group of guys, I mean, I was, you know, uh, 
just delighted to work with them. You know, many of us are all friends to this day. And uh, I think Paul was very lucky to uh, have them as a band, uh, touring band, because um, they really brought something to the table that uh, amplified his vision and I think took it to another place. I think the tour was just a singular event. It was just so, I mean, uh, that tour I think will be remembered for many, many decades for how you know forceful it was and uh, what it presented to people, which uh, was Paul in a really different kind of light. But still having that, you know, master showman, master musician, and communicator right, right there uh, in a very uh, intimate and forceful way. The best front man in rock. Hi, this is Eric Singer of KISS, and you're listening to Pod Kissed. Lewis, you're uh, now on your 27th year of working in the business, and you have worked with an incredible and amazing list of people. People like Oprah Winfrey, Metallica, The Ramones, Aretha Franklin, Jane Seymour, Sam Kennison, Eric Burden, and Dizzy Gillespie, and of course, Paul Stanley now. Do you find yourself uh, ever pinching yourself going, oh my god, it's Metallica, look, it's Oprah. What is it like for a kid from Chi-Town to find himself working with such a great list of amazing superstars? Well, I think, I mean, I feel, you know, very fortunate to have uh, worked with all those great people. I don't really find myself much ever saying, oh my god, it's this person or that person, because uh, really there's only a few people who've ever had that kind of effect on me, and one of them is Paul. Um, Paul just has that effect on people, I think, but uh, for the for the most part, I'm just really I'm humbled and grateful to have worked with so many great people because they all bring such diverse and great things to the table uh, to work with you. You know, like working with Metallica, I learned a great deal about filming uh, and capturing drummers properly from uh, Lars Ulrich. I've also learned from the great dr- jazz drummer Max Roach about you know the feeling of a drummer really capturing that on film properly you know without uh you know without a heavy hand but but doing it where you really get the feeling of the rhythms down right uh, i learned a lot about that from lars and metallica is a, a great band to work with because their energy level is so high uh and really uh their fan base and everything else just connects uh with the ramones well really they're uh, johnny ramone and the ramones are the people who brought me into the my professional career to begin with uh that was uh I was a teenager, and uh, he had seen some pictures. Johnny had seen some pictures I had done. I was back then in the 70s. I was uh, selling pictures, taking pictures at many concerts, and I would sell pictures to uh, Hit Parader and Circus Magazine and Cream and Rolling Stone and all places like that. Excellent. Got a call, and it was, uh, you know, Johnny Ramone. He liked what I was doing, and we, we made, like, uh, the short film together. And then after that, we I was working, doing stuff with the Ramones all the way through till 96, till the last show ever. Uh, in uh, California, but I uh, loved working with them because uh, Johnny is a, is a was a guy, bless his heart, uh, so much like Paul, a uh, person very serious about what they do, very serious about their band and what they created, and in uh, all that though, great humor, great personality, easy person to work with because they don't take the people around them for granted, um, you know, your your individual strengths that you bring to the table, they bring out the best in you. Um, so that I really found with Johnny was phenomenal. I mean, we became very good friends, and uh, I was very, very sad when he uh, when he passed because, um, as it was, you know, sadly kind of expected of uh, for Davey to kind of self destruct. Uh, right. Sad because he was really, really great guy, but you know, personal demons sometimes really come into play uh, in so many aspects of life. But was a guy, you know, it's so vital, so you know, 
in the prime of his life and he just got taken away from us so abruptly. And uh, I was really devastated when he passed away because I was like, my God, you know, I'll, I'll never see him again. And it's right. like, uh, I'll never, I'll never work with him again on anything. And uh, those are major losses to, you know, um, I think to all of us. But uh, when you've worked with him, it's like, and you be befriended, then it takes on another level. And you made a film back in the early 80s uh, with the Ramones, one of the first things to capture them, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was one of the first, but it was uh, around the time of end of the century. And um, it, uh, we had a good time making that. It was really, we did it in Chicago. And I believe part of uh, part of it was done in Detroit too, and um, I, I had a great time making that. And then we did uh, another thing in London years later. And uh, you know, I've just always uh, you know loved being around the Ramones. They were just great guys, and I really enjoyed the whole uh, feel of feel of them. You know, uh, it's something that I've I've really two bands that I've always loved the most. Uh, Kiss being number one, and, and, and the Ramones, both are uh, all made up pretty much of uh, New York guys, Queens, you know, yep. Queens, New York. As a fan of both the Ramones and Kiss, uh, it, it you, you had to realize how incredibly cool it was when Kiss uh, appeared on the tribute album for the Ramones, and they did uh, Rock and Roll Radio. What did you think you of know, that I track? Just, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought it had such... Uh, it was the Ramones on, uh, uh, with, uh, with the Kiss feeling infused into it, of uh, kind of like uh, taking the track and making a little... with that grand spectacle feel to it. And uh, I loved it. I, from my, my understanding, I believe that Johnny was involved in the recording of that. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm right about that. But I know that Paul and Johnny were very good friends. And, um, you know, I think it was a, a just fantastic. How apt, how fitting could it be? It was a that, perfect that fit. Do, that kid, a perfect fit. You know, I mean, uh, all New York boys all together, you know, doing their thing, all successful in their own ways. And isn't it amazing how the Ramones have... It become these iconic, like, you know, larger-than-life figures when when they were around. You know, they never played a place bigger than the Aragon Ballroom, yeah. except for, you know, some festivals and things in Europe, uh, like your Rio, you know, Rio de Janeiro and stuff like that. They played to massive crowds. But for the most part, they played in small, intimate venues. So, and it's something now here at Ramones Music, I mean, uh, I'm seeing kids, uh, you know, on skateboards, and they have Ramones logos on them, and they don't even know what it is. Right. You know, I'll go up to them and go, you're under the Ramones? I'm like, oh, no, I just think it's a cool... Cool logo. Cool. Yeah. Right, and I'm like, I'm like, well, here, you know, check the check out their music. You know, listen to that. <laughs> you know, and they put on Rocket to Russia and, you know, you know um, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. <laughs> there you go. Um, out, yeah. of, out of all the tracks on that Ramones tribute album, I feel it was the one that was the most true to the Ramones. Yeah, for, for me too. It, it's the one that had the heart. That's for sure. Exactly. And um, you know, I think uh, Paul and Gene really approached that uh, right on target. And uh, you know, it's like uh, all those guys knew each other all for so long that you know, th there's a lot of feeling in that track. I think too, because there's a personal connection. Again, I think uh, getting back to the to that language, 
you know, when you have a personal connection to something and you really feel it, that's when things come across. I think that's what makes uh, Paul Stanley One Live Kiss a very special movie and a very unique one. It's because, you know, we all went into it approaching it with feeling, with uh, real emotion, real things invested into it. Um, and as, you know, great jazz singer, great jazz legend always said, Billy Holiday always said, if you haven't lived it and you don't feel it, you can't sing it, baby. That's what the movie's all about. It's all about feeling and all about energy. Um, there's something I like to talk to you about. Um, as a fan of film, I salute you for your work in film preservation. Uh, oh, thank you. You recently were uh, involved in a part of a, a part of a project to restore and reissue the uh, masterpiece The Hitchhiker from 1953, which was directed by the legendary Ida Lupino. What was it about that film in particular that reached out to you? Well, it wasn't only just that film, it was Ida Lupino herself. I mean, Ida was my first biggest influence uh, in life. I mean, as a very small child, I saw her, uh, and actually the film on Dangerous Ground, uh, RKO, I believe 1950, with uh, Nicholas Ray directing. And um, I, it, again, we'll get back to the aspect of the stare, the gaze. Actually, in that movie, she played a blind woman, uh, but it was her stare, her solitary stare, just alone and uh, singular. Um, I remember that same feel from Paul of like, you know, looking at that first promo poster and looking at that gaze and just saying, boy, that really connects to me. And Ida Lupino really did that for me. And then I was, you know, of course, from that moment on, I was, was rabid about it. I was like, I have to find out everything about this woman. And uh, I started, my parents just were like, oh, let's get out of his way because he's got a mission now. You know, and uh, God bless my parents because they used to put up with so much from me of, you know, going to libraries and getting this and getting prints and film prints and, uh, you know, letting me stay up uh, until 5 o'clock in the morning to watch a movie. I mean, uh, as long as I kept my work up and my schoolwork up and, of course, was polite and everything else uh, and was good to my elders, I never was able to have any restrictions on me. So um, I just thought Ida Lupino was totally captivating. I started to see a lot of films of hers found out that she was a director and that she formed her own production company and did uh, just films of such social significance really coming from her own sensibility and her own way of being. So I started to see those, and uh, one of those films was The Hitchhiker, um, which is more of a traditional film noir about you know isolation and fear and um, death and all those things, but there's so many bits of business in there that have so much to do with her character, her way of being. And um, I connected with the film. I first saw it in 1976 and uh, rented an old print of it and uh, was just captivated by the film. And then years later, I mean, when I got to know Ida and she became like a second mom to me, really, um, just one of the greatest people I, I ever encountered. Uh, she, um, you know, had totally, you know, didn't care about her work anymore or any aspect of Hollywood. She was in her uh, early 70s by that time. And I brought up the notion of that I wanted to restore The Hitchhiker because we were going to do a screening of uh, certain films of Ida Lupino through the Academy, and there was no fine prints at all of The Hitchhiker available. They were all scratched and uh, damaged or duped prints. They looked terrible. And I knew that the film was actually never since day one, since 1953, seen the way Ida Lupino intended it to be seen because it was not printed uh, properly to begin with upon first release in 53 because it was a B wow. film, basically. Yeah, it was never seen the way she intended it to be seen uh, in terms of density of the of the light and the shadow and black levels and all those things that are technical in film but make all the emotional difference in the world to the audience watching it 
without, you know, subconsciously, not consciously. So um, Ida's attitude was when I brought it to her was like, you know, why do you want to bother yourself with old junk? Why do you want to, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're so busy yourself. Why do you want to do all this stuff? Nobody cares about all that old crap anymore. And I was like, no, you're wrong. Believe me, this is very important to film history and to your legacy. And uh, begrudgingly, she was like, well, go ahead, go do it. You know, and uh, sadly, she passed away in 1995 at 77. And... Um, we never got a chance to see the full restoration of the movie because we spent three and a half years on and off working on it very intensely. And uh, then in 97, it was reissued. And uh, I think the thing I'm most grateful about is, of course, that people have seen her great work, again, which is, I'm continuing. I really want people to experience more of her directorial work because they're much more familiar with her acting work than her directing work. But she was able to infuse herself and everything she ever did with her own production company and the hundreds of television series that she directed uh, afterward, like uh, shows like Untouchables and uh, Twilight Outer, Zone. Outer Limits? Uh, no Outer Limits. She also did a, um, episodes of Boris Karloff's Thriller, which are amongst the best episodes on that series. Um, she did uh, many episodes of Gilligan's Island, mm -hmm. actually. And, uh, you know, as a, a show like that is so stylized to itself that a director can basically only be a manager on something like that, but right. a director of her caliber was able to infuse in characters and in situations things that were that she made important in it, with inflection, with tone, with feeling, with pacing. So those are some of the you know traits of a director, that a great director who brings it out. And she had all those great, uh, great talents and more. I, I wish. Uh, that uh, one of my quests is to really bring the directorial works of Ida Lupino much more to public consciousness across, around the world. We are just getting Chances are, if you've been to a KISS event, you've seen Mr. Speed. It may have been one of the expos, it may have been on the march on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it may have been at the Coffee House, or any of the many KISS events in the last year or so. The band is a working band and traveling around the country all the time. Today we speak to Mr. Speed's resident star child, Rich Cossack. Good evening, Rich. How are you today? Doing excellent, Ken. Thanks for asking. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Speed and how the band came to be? Um, it basically uh, sprouted up from a chance meeting that I had at a record show in Pittsburgh back in about 1993. Uh, I ran into a guy at that record show that was flipping through a Kiss book, and I happened to just look over his shoulder and see what he was looking at, and I made a comment to him, and he turned and we started talking, and uh, I come to find out that he played guitar, and I told him that, that I did as well. Uh, we exchanged phone numbers. And I think within a week or so, I was over at his place. Um, we were just kind of hammering out a couple of tunes that we knew together. And basically, the original idea was just to get together to see what he and I could do with guitars and these Kiss songs for nothing else. Uh, we just wanted to try and uh, satisfy our own tastes. And um, before we knew it, six months had passed. And we thought to ourselves, wow, this, this is sounding pretty good. We got the, the guitar parts down. Maybe we should take it one step further. Lo and behold, we started placing ads at local music stores and in the local uh, rags in Pittsburgh and uh, got some guys to come down, and we got a drummer and we got a bass player, 
and um, that was really how the whole thing started. It was, there was no intention of ever forming a band. It was basically just for our own enjoyment, and 14-plus uh, years later, it's been one of the greatest things that um, I've ever been a part of. How many expos do you guys do a year? I think roughly we do about two to three expos a year. We, I guess we're, we, we have a circuit that we do, and we do uh, Cleveland, Dayton, and Indianapolis. Because basically the guys that put those events on have become real good friends of ours. We've got a real great working relationship with them. They know that they don't have to worry about anything with bringing a band in when it's us because we come in, we have a routine, we get the job done, and usually everybody who comes to the event has a really, really good time, uh, including us, because we love the KISS Expos. Uh, it's a great place for us to go and make new friends, meet fans from all over the place. There's fans from Canada, there's fans from Mexico, uh, California. I met a guy at, at the Cleveland Expo this past year. Um, so you get to meet a, a wide variety of people. You get to strike up friendships with everybody. And as a result, you can promote your band. And then people go out there and they talk more about Mr. Speed. So for me and for the rest of the band, that's a great way to network without you know really doing a whole lot of work. So couldn't be happier with those expos. Speaking of fun events, you recently did the Coffee House event. Uh, this is the second year in a row. Uh, the crowd really loved you guys. How was it, and how was it meeting Tommy Thayer? Well, i got to be honest with you. I'm an old Black and Blue fan. One of my favorite albums from when I had a, a record store job back in the mid-'80s was Without Love by Black and Blue. So to get the chance, uh, this was actually, I think, the second or third time I've had the chance to meet Tommy, but first time meeting him as a full-time member of KISS. When I met him prior to this, he was the road manager on the farewell tour mm -hmm. you know i got the chance to tell him that i really loved that record uh, I, I was a black and blue fan at the time and still am to this day i have some stuff on my ipod um but playing the coffee house was um is kind of like you know the stanley cup or the the world series for us we basically go through the whole year and when we get the offer to do that we basically do anything and everything we can to get there because we know that that's where diehard fans are going to be it's it's basically the pulse of the KISS community for a day. It's like what everybody's looking at is the KISS coffee house. So to be associated with that is, for us, a really good feather in our cap. We loved being there. The crowd was great. The weather, you know, we had Hurricane Hannah, which was <laughs> basically roaring in at the shore, you know, the, the day before. And uh, all we really got was a lot of rain and wind. And we woke up Saturday morning, the day of the event, and everything had cleared up, and it was it was almost like it was meant to be. So we were very thankful that we had gotten down there and we had just thrown caution to the wind, so to speak, no pun intended, and uh, everything worked out great. And we were very, very uh, fortunate to be a part of the event uh, two years in a row. And Brian and uh, Skip, they, they run a great organization down there, and the staff is always friendly, uh, very good people. The year before you had an amazing thing happen, you got to play with Ace Fraley himself at the coffee house what was that like well I guess it would be let me equate it out to probably for most people like hitting a lottery um, <laughs> it, it was pretty much the the single most surreal moment of my life because we were told that something might happen but we were told not to really talk about it you'd be amazed at how many things we experience uh, through the year where we're not allowed to talk about things. Uh, we can't, as much as we get excited about them, we can't share them with people until we actually know that it's confirmed. But all during the day, 
we had met his bodyguards and we had uh, heard from his uh, manager and we had, you know, Brian and Skip had pulled us aside and said, well, now, you know, if this happens, you know, this is what I, how I want you to handle it kind of a thing. So, but don't get your hopes up. It's like dangling the carrot in front of our face and then at the last second <laughs> pulling it away and we just can't get it. So we did our show. And at the end of our show, we knew he was at least going to come up on stage and thank everybody for for turning out. Which would have been enough of a thrill in itself, just being on the same stage. Sure, just to see, just to be that close to the guy. I mean, and and everyone knows how kind of removed he is from Kiss events now and not a full-time member of the band anymore and things like that. So it made it that much more special just to be in his presence and to know that he was one of the original guys that created this thing that we were all down there celebrating. So then when he came out from behind our amplifiers wearing one of Joe's guitars, that's when I knew something special was going to happen. I kid you not, sitting here telling you about it, I still feel, you know, the goosebumps on my skin. And I still, you know, my eyes well up with with tears because for people who will never get that chance, I tried to live it for you uh, during that four minutes that we were on stage together. And, you know, everybody says, hey, did you get a picture? Did you get to meet him? Did you... Did you get an autograph and all that? I said, you know what? I didn't, but I got something that everybody else didn't. For me, that was that was everything. I got the chance to play Shock Me with him, and after it was over, he started to walk off stage, and he turned for whatever reason and looked at me, and I extended my hand to shake his hand, and he came back over. He shook my hand, and then he gave me a hug, which was very impromptu. And uh, as he hugged me, he put his hand behind my head, and he said, everything's going to be okay. And I, to this day, I don't know why he said that to me, but he must know something. Maybe it's that interstellar, you know, mentality of his. Ace is on knows, another level. <laughs> yeah, maybe, he, maybe he just knows that we as a tribute band try to do right by the fans and we try to do what's in our heart. And maybe he just wanted to tell me that, you know, keep doing what you're doing and everything's going to work out. I just wanted to thank everybody for uh, coming to the Kids Coffee House. Doing a little song called Shock Me. <laughs> Um, Rich, I'm sure that, like all of us in the KISS Army, that you're looking forward to the Paul Stanley's One Life KISS DVD release. And I understand that you caught Paul on tour, correct? I did. Where at? I was able to, we were able to see him at the Emerald Theater in uh, Detroit. It was actually the night before they uh, did the House of Blues in Chicago, where they filmed this DVD performance. And it was amazing. It was single-handedly the best concert I have seen in probably five years because we we managed to get there early and we managed to get right up against the stage i haven't done that in quite some time i i thought that i had gotten to be beyond that stage of wanting to be so close to the artist i thought i'm gonna stay yeah i usually stand at safe distances at concerts but this one i wanted to be real close for it because it was paul and it was the guy who it's the guy who i you know i emulate and look up to musically you know with what i do so to be down there and to be that close, to feel the energy from the stage and to be able to sing the songs and just hear that band perform and see him doing what he seems to really love to do uh, was great. And then to hear songs like that we had never heard, like A Million to One, for me to hear Magic Touch live was the best moment of the night uh, because that great was my favorite, my favorite song from Dynasty since I bought that album in 1979. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we as a tribute band started uh, incorporating that one into our shows because it just really touches uh, 
me and it touches Joe as, as well. And um, we know that there's a lot of fans out there that like to hear songs like that. So it was a great night. Um, I wish I had, I'd had the chance to see it, you know, at least one more show. But I was very thankful for the, the opportunity that I did have up in Detroit. It was a great night. Well, the good thing is that on October 21st, we're going to be able to take the experience home with us. And uh, so you will get to see that show again. <laughs> um, what do you look forward to the most from the new DVD? I look forward to trying to learn maybe some of the songs that uh, I, I haven't quite been able to figure out on my own. For the most part with Mr. Speed, I break down a lot of the, the songs musically and then take them back to the band and, and show everybody their parts and help out with things. That's kind of uh, my main role with Mr. Speed. You know, I had a chance to talk to uh, Lewis recently and, uh, you know, congratulated him on the impending success of the DVD and told him I was really looking forward to, you know, the early footage of Paul and hearing about Paul's um, early recounts of his his childhood and his uh, years prior to Kiss and think, everything that led up to where we are today. Uh, so that's something that I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to, just to learn more about Paul Stanley, the person, um, and then getting to see the amazing performance uh, where everything that he had talked about led up to that night there in Chicago when they did the filming of the DVD. Um, what did you think of the Live to Win CD, and what were your fave tracks? And in your opinion, what is the most underrated track on that CD? I love the entire CD. I can listen to it over and over again, and I don't get tired of it. It's, it's basically like a 78 solo album. For whatever reason, I just have an affinity for this guy, for what he does musically. Um, and the, you know, the standout tracks on there, um, Wake Up Screaming, I love that track. Me too. Uh, we we uh, have covered Bulletproof, uh, which I think has, uh, it reminds me of a little bit of uh, Silver Spoon off of Hot in the Shade. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the title track is a great song. Um, it's got a great message. It's, it's just got a great hook. Um, I also like Lift, I think. That's a great song. You know, um, it's interesting to hear what Paul was doing musically and if I ever had the chance to ask him, I would want to know where, how he got influenced to come up with some of the musical parts because there's certain tracks on the album that, that almost have like a, you know, almost like a, a dancey type thing going on with some of the guitar parts. They're not, you know, ripping guitars like you're, you're used to hearing. But I thought vocally he did an, an amazing uh, job. I thought, you know, the collaborations with um, Desmond Child and, and the other writers on the record um, I believe Holly Knight was involved with some things on that record. It's just great. It's great writing. It's simple and to the point. It doesn't, nothing's real long-winded, you know, and, and you get the message across, which I really loved. Um, as far as an underrated track on the album, in my opinion, there isn't an underrated track. I think they're all great. Uh, I think that they, they are all what we as Paul Stanley fans were waiting for and hoping for. And even now, two years after the fact, I still listen to that record like it's brand new. I guess it's safe to say that you could say that the entire album was underrated. <laughs> because it's, well, yeah. it's truly a great album. It's, 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 it's modern sounding, yet classic at the same time. Like you mentioned the 78 solo album. You can, you can see the traces and, and all of that still there. It's just here we are. It's, you know, we're, we're in this time period and, and it's music for this time. Exactly. I don't. Th I think it's 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 like the um, the brother of the '78 solo album, but you know, from a different mother. Now I know that you guys have played Bulletproof and Magic Touch off of uh, Dynasty, of course. You're at an expo, and all of a sudden you rip into something like Bulletproof. What's the reaction from the crowd? 
Well, at a at an expo, the the reaction is great. That's what the, I think a lot of the fans there are looking to hear. They want to hear the stuff that they are not used to hearing. And for us, that's that's very gratifying because the the time and effort that we put into learning a song like that, it, it really seems to pay off at an expo. And we love when the reaction from the fans is uh, a favorable one. So it makes us want to go back to the drawing board and try different songs. The reaction is usually very favorable at expos. That's where you've got the hardcore KISS fans that are there. They want to hear stuff like that. And for us, it's, like I said, very gratifying when we get to do those kind of songs. This uh, interview is part of a uh, special for the Paul Stanley One Life Kiss DVD. And you have been asked to perform at the One Life Kiss world premiere event in Chicago on October 19th. Uh, you will be performing a live acoustic set of Paul Stanley songs. Uh, how did this all come about and what can folks look forward to from your set? It basically came about as a result of an email that I got from Keith LaRue. Keith had an idea. He said, Rich, what do you think about this? And as I read the words, you know, I got kind of excited because I thought, here's the webmaster of KISS Online, who is also a friend of mine, is suggesting that I come to Chicago and do this event. Now, um, if, if I can't, you know, actually jam with Paul on stage, I guess being his opening act is the next best thing. So <laughs> that's the way I look at it. Um, I'm honored to have been asked to be a part of this event. And I'm looking forward to doing uh, a, a good mix of songs. I hope that the songs stand up with just two acoustic guitars because I'm actually bringing Joe, our ace fairly, with with us. Who, who, and we're, Joe, we're Joe do does an excellent ace, by the way. Thanks, and I'll, I'll pass that along to him. Um, you know, we're going to try and make the 